1: episode of Complementarianish, the occasional offshoot of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Sarah Klooster and Katie Grubbs. It's been a while since our last complementarian episode, but we're excited to be back for a very special episode, part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network's week-long series on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the recent podcast from Christianity Today. But before we dive into today's discussion, let's take a minute to introduce ourselves to any new listeners. Sarah, why don't you go first?
2: Hi, my name is Sarah Kloster. I am a married working mom uh, living in West Texas. And uh, listening to this podcast uh, helped me get through lots and lots of loads of laundry.
1: That's a good point. It's really good for that. Um, very, very good for laundry. Uh, Katie, what about you?
0: I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Leeds, Alabama with my husband, David Grubbs, at the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am a part-time college professor. I teach English Lit online for Houston Baptist University and spend the rest of my time taking care of our four kids. And um, my activity that I did while I was listening to this podcast for for lots of hours was that I bought myself some new um, historical fashion color books and new markers, and I had a great time uh, drawing and coloring.
1: Also a very good podcast listening activity. Um, My name is Alexis Neal, and I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the Christian Humanist Radio Network's political podcast. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training, and I have been an occasional adjunct in the legal field. But these days, most of my time and energy is devoted to homeschooling, our two boys, and uh, also serving on our local city council and the zoning board. Um, Now that we've introduced ourselves, uh, back to our topic, Uh, today we are discussing the recent and very popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. As I mentioned, this is part of a network-wide series, so you'll have the opportunity to hear from other shows in the Christian Humanist Radio Network, including the City of Man, Sectarian Review, our own Christian Feminist Podcast, and the network's flagship show, The Christian Humanist Podcast. If you've been listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you'll understand why we wanted to cover it across the network. There's a lot to talk about. And because we have so many shows covering this topic, we're going to limit our discussion here today to basically complementarianism uh, at Mars Hill and then the issues relevant to, uh, to those of us in complementarian circles. For discussions of other issues raised in The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, we would encourage you to listen to the other shows in the network that have episodes dropping this week. Uh, A little bit of background about uh, the podcast we're discussing. Uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a podcast from Christianity Today, hosted by Mike Cosper. The first episode dropped in June of 2021, and the series finale was in December. The show featured 12 episodes and three bonus episodes, and Cosper has intimated that more bonus episodes may be coming. Um, It was incredibly popular with millions of downloads, and I believe it even cracked Apple Podcasts' top 10 um, a couple of times. The podcast examines, as you would expect, Mars Hill Church, a small home church that started in Seattle in 1996 and eventually expanded into a multi-site mega church with congregations in 15 locations across four states uh, with a massive online presence. Um, and um, then also 18 years after its original founding, Mars Hill closed its doors. The story of Mars Hill is necessarily intertwined with that of its main teaching pastor and one of its original founders, the controversial, inflammatory, and polarizing Mark Driscoll, who was eventually removed from leadership and resigned. During his time at Mars Hill, Driscoll was part of the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement, including teaching complementarian or, at any rate, his version of complementarian theology. Hence our discussion today. Before we dive directly into that discussion, though, I do want to take a quick moment to share our experience with Mark Driscoll or Mars Hill prior to the Christianity Today podcast. Uh, Katie, what about you? Had you read any Driscoll books or listened to any of his sermons before listening to the podcast?
0: Not a lot. Um, I knew who he was. I had, you know, kind of heard him in the news and seen, you know, stories about the cussing pastor and things like that. Um, And I we actually um, knew this is like a really tangential connection but like um i feel like maybe um i had a, a sister-in-law who had a sister who went there at one point um so i didn't know a whole lot but um my main contact with his with his writing was when we um did an uh, actually did a CFP episode um way back in the very beginning of this podcast about his book that he wrote with his wife about called real marriage which we're going to talk about here in a minute um that's the only thing of his that i've actually read um, and we were kind of prepping for that. I, I will say reading that didn't make me want to read um, really a lot of his other stuff. Um, but Yeah. So not too much contact. And then through the years though, I've actually paid more attention kind of through the years as things begin to devolve. So, um, when I listened to the podcast, I actually already knew a lot about the kind of plagiarism allegations, um, the kind of scam to, uh, to get on the New York times bestseller list for real marriage. I I, I read up on all those issues and kind of paid attention to what was happening at Mars Hill kind of through the years. Um, and also read, um, some of Wendy Allsup stuff, um, at Practical Theology for Women because she used to go to Mars Hill. And so she wrote some things about that. So um, I got I'm actually a lot more familiar with kind of the media and stories about him and that church and what happened later than I am with the primary text, you might say, with his writings, his, his speaking.
1: Sarah, what about you?
2: So one of the things I learned from listening to this podcast is how very, very little I actually know about contemporary Christian culture. Uh, the only thing I knew about Mars Hill is that I knew somebody from growing up who had worked there and he had been on staff and I knew that he, he had, uh, this guy had been going to, to seminary and then had heard, uh, Mark Driscoll speak and basically dropped out of seminary to just go work at Mars Hill directly. And then obviously isn't working there now. And that's kind of all I knew that like, oh, this guy that I knew who'd be one of my brother's friends, I used to have a crush on him, had work here, and that's kind of all I knew, and then I would hear, like, it, like, pop up of people say, like, Mark Driscoll or Mars Hill, but I am not somebody who ever reads Christianity today, like, I have just never engaged in that, I go to my church, listen to my preacher, and that's what I do, (laughs) and so the only, the other way I actually, I think I heard of him first is on, um, some of the, like, various Christian parody videos where they're talking about, like, oh, reading different pastors, and so they're like, well, do you want some Rob Bell? Well, do you want some Matt Chandler? Well, do you want something really like, you know, Mark Driscoll? And so I just, like, I was familiar with the name, but I didn't know what it meant or what it stood for at all. I, you know, I've heard people like, oh, well, he's this, he's that. I just, I knew nothing about him until I started listening to this, and I was just kind of like, OMG! Why would anyone want to go there? (laughs) But, of course, that's all... Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And it's always easier to look back and be like, "Oh, this was so obvious."
1: Well, sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 certainly fair. Um, my my exposure is, is sort of like yours, Katie, uh, but maybe a little bit more um, more involved. Uh, my husband actually introduced me to Mark Driscoll. He had listened to some of his sermons and appreciated some aspects of his delivery and teaching, uh, he, uh, including his bluntness, um, his clarity on the gospel. Um, they didn't talk a lot about this in, um, in the podcast, but he really, really did a lot of times in his sermon really hit hard on the actual explicit message of the gospel, uh, preached that pretty faithfully. Um, living that and, and having that be, be the reality at the church may have been a different story, but as far as the, the sermons, the public face of the church... Um, and his teaching um, that was present. So we actually listened through the sermon series on Song of Solomon, um, which I found underwhelming, um, and then also ended up doing some book reviewing for some Christian publishers. um, And so we read and reviewed a few of his books. I think I've read three of them, um, all of which I was kind of meh about, and some of which I was actively angry at. Um, so we were paying attention during uh, all the plagiarism scandals, um, the New York Times bestseller list scandal, the elephant room brouhaha, and, um, and I distinctly remember all of the stuff around the strange fire conference because I was also mad about the strange fire conference and, um, and just, yeah, um, that, that whole situation was kind of a grumpy situation anyway, uh, with that conference. But, um, but his behavior there didn't, didn't help. So I, I was aware of all of the, the public portions of the fall of Mars Hill. That was very familiar to me listening to it. Um, a lot of what we get in the podcast is what's behind the scenes, and I, I certainly didn't have any um, information about that. I was, I was one of that online audience who had seen some sermons and was aware of the, the public face a little bit more, and that's it. All right, so back to the topic at hand. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and specifically how that relates to complementarianism. Um, there's a lot of discussion of complementarianism on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So, Katie, let me ask you this. Was Mars Hill a complementarian church?
0: That's a really hard question. I, I would say... Well, and because and, really it's two different questions because it was Marcel a complementarian? church is actually a different question than is Mark Driscoll complementarian. Cause to me, I would say it seems like the church as a whole seems a little bit more complementarian than Driscoll. To me, Driscoll seems a lot more like he's leaning to the authoritarian side. Um, I mean, there's some places in real marriage where he talks about the need to be friends with your wife, which sounds a little bit more complementarian, but the, To me, his his stated theology was always complementarian, but the ways that he talked about women, his tone, a lot of times um, was very dismissive. Um, And there are some things we're going to get into in a minute in the ways that he kind of dealt with people in his church that – sent the message that, you know, that the the woman in the family just didn't count as much as, as the man, um, which to me is not complementarian. That's, you know, the whole point of complementarianism is that we're equally important because we both bring different strengths to the table in theory. that That's how it should be. Right. Um, and so I, I would say that um, in terms of theology, yes. It was a complementarian church, but it sounds to me very much like that the way things played out there was not actually complementarian and was more like a kind of, um, more like an authoritarian environment where, um, and particularly with things like the, 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 the intense, um, focus on women always working inside the home. Um, which I think did, did come from the pulpit, um, there was not any kind of encouragement for women who were working outside the home at Mars Hill. And to, I, it's, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just not in the same complementarian circles as everybody else, but every every church we have belong to has been complementarian, and I've never seen anybody have an issue with women working outside the home just in and of itself as an idea, you know? Um We've always had, you know, we've always gone to church with. I mean, I've worked outside, you know, worked outside the home when my kids were smaller. Like, so that 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 one piece especially feels more like the authoritarian world of, of a kind of Bill Gothard space with the insistence on the woman should always be working at home, not out in the workplace. So I, I know that's kind of a, a garbled answer in part because I'm still grappling with this. I'm trying to decide if I think it was or it wasn't. And I do think that there's a, a, a difference between the church's theology and Driscoll himself. And, and I also think that he's changed and he said different things at different times. And so it's hard to get a handle on him because he changes all the time. Right. That does make it more difficult.
1: Um, Sarah, what about you? Do you think that Mars Hill uh, was a complementarian church and or Mark Driscoll was a complementarian? I'm going to uh,
2: basically go with Katie and say that that's her, what she stated is essentially my opinion, um, that the church itself officially on paper seems fairly complementarian. But what Mark was actually speaking from the pulpit definitely seemed much more on the authoritarian side. Uh, One of the things that they talk about a lot is that, that there was a lot of debt problem (laughs) with the church, with some of the church members, right? Because the wife couldn't work because if you work, you're going to lose status in the church. And so that, that you had all of, you know, he's, it was, it just feels like it was so irresponsible of him because Seattle's a very expensive place. He's encouraging people to marry early buy homes that be on this you know have as many kids as possible but mom needs you know mom can't work and so the one thing I actually thought was man this must have been a huge breeding ground for multi-level marketing among the women at this church Ah. (laughs) like they must have been like in they must have been so into LuLaRoe at this church that's fair (laughs) Um, because I mean how else are you going to help contribute right And, you know, not that And there. I'm sure that there were definitely probably members either at that church or maybe at one of the um, satellite churches where, you know, maybe they both worked. uh, But you probably you definitely couldn't be in leadership. Right. Like you definitely couldn't be important and be an elder or probably teach. Right. If your wife was working. So, yeah, you know, maybe they did have a couple of people where they just kind of attended and didn't really get involved. But. If you needed wanted any sort of leadership or you're going to be employed by the church, you definitely had,
1: had to be uh,
2: that stay-at-home mom.
1: Yeah, that certainly was the imp- impression that, that I got from the, the podcast as well. Um, I, think, I think you guys have made some really good points. I think that, that some other, other questions I would have about whether the complementarian label applies as opposed to, as Katie said, more of an authoritarian label... Um, Mark was pretty well known for making misogynistic comments. Um, a lot of what he set out to do was to, uh, to teach men and to, to call men to something greater. And there are a lot of different ways that he would do that, but a lot of them had to do with a very, I think in many ways, a very narrow view of masculinity. There was a lot of talk about, um, the undercurrent of anger, um, the, the use of violent language, whether that was for humor or hyperbole or not, um, is up to, I guess, the listener. And then the, the constant use of the, the metaphor of war. Um, and part of the way that he would talk up this masculinity and call uh, men to this, what he perceived as this higher standard, was by diminishing what he viewed as the opposite of masculinity and by demeaning. So you'd have a lot of that language about, um, all of that stuff you would say, like, don't be a girl, be a man, you know, you man up all of these kinds of things, um, that were very prevalent. And at one point, one of the, the comments that really bothered me was that there was a church, oh, the, the, was it the Episcopalian church had picked a female bishop. Some church had picked a female bishop, had decided to have a, a woman as a bishop, and his comment was, yeah, next up, they'll have, you know, a fluffy baby bunny be the bishop. And and that bothered me for a couple of reasons. One is uh, women are still people. <laughs> uh, a bunny is not a person, but you're not going from, like, the the person who is a man, the human who is a man, and now you're taking a step away from humanity to pick a woman, and then the next trajectory is, like, a subhuman animal um so so that that i think is problematic even though i realized that what he was really trying to do was just amp up this contrast between masculinity and what's tough and manly and and women who are not those things um but it also it also reveals um a view not just that the biblical order is men in certain positions of leadership within the church but men as the sole gender that is fit for those positions. So we don't just have male pastors, lead pastors, because we see that reflected in scripture and we want to to honor that but in fact because women are are inherently unfit for those roles and so if you are willing to seek out a woman to be a bishop you're obviously willing to seek out a woman to or a bunny to be the bishop because you're you're starting to look at people who are unqualified and we talked about this in our very first complementarianish episode there are different views in complementarianism about um what what it means for women um out and men outside of the church or outside of the home if anything Um, But, you know, one of the things we talked about was the idea is not because that that men are lead pastors in a complementarian church because men are always better preachers or better expositors or better teachers. Uh, It's not an inherent fitness question uh, where women as a gender are just not suited for those things. Um, And his comment really struck me as having that assumption that women were incapable of doing this job, Um, not just that women would would. would not fill that position out of a desire to abide by a complementarian view of scripture but um but that they couldn't do it um so that really bothered me a lot but there was a lot of those kinds of misogynistic comments um you had comments about pastors wives letting themselves go and and not being as young and hot with two t's as they had once been which was annoying on multiple levels not least because when i think of people who like he not a lot of exactly pastors him. and not a lot of pastors are like drop dead gorgeous either. Like a lot of pastors nope. you could argue maybe should like get on the treadmill a little bit, you know? Like that's just not just the women.
2: Like he he you know, he he looks, you know, he's he physically he kind of looks like someone in my family where like he's kind of like this just big he's like a short-legged broad chested like barrel like barrel chested guy who looks like he should probably just be like a power lifter only he's like not right but that kind (laughs) of like he has that dad strength of where like i can lift this one really heavy thing and then like he's gonna be in bed for four days because he like pulled his groin or something like that's just kind of um one of the things
0: that oh go ahead sarah
2: one of the things when, uh, that it kind of made me think of, uh, Alexis, as you were talking about how he, some of the comments he was making, it kind of actually made me think a little bit of, not that he was necessarily purposely drawing from this, but it was just the only comparison I could think of, is kind of like the Greek view of, like, masculine and feminine, right? That, like, the male is the standard and, like, to be female is to just be, in like, sl- not only just slightly inherently inferior, but, like, a distorted masculinity, Right. Like, it really feels very similar <laughs> to some of this stuff. Um, and it's it's always kind of interesting to me, one, the idea of, like, letting themselves go, like, okay, like, you want a, you know, we have to bear all these children, keep this house, not work outside the home, and continue to be sufficiently hot for husbands to probably let themselves go as well.
0: Um, <laughs> I feel like that fits this whole that fits with this whole attitude though. Like yeah. if, I mean if you think about in in real marriage she talks of like it's always grace who needs to change. Like, he's fine. He's good. But she has stuff she needs to work on. She has issues. She has baggage. She needs to repent of her sin. Like, you know, she needs to be willing to have,
2: she needs to want to have sex with her husband more. She needs to want to have more
0: sex. Like, I I mean, in his own marriage relationship, it seems like that he's always expecting her to change and he's never expecting himself to change. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised then that on, you know, on the level of his whole church, he's going to always, you know, he's always going to be looking at women to be the ones to, Keep changing, keep themselves up, stay pretty to to keep things good and not. Ex- it's weird because and, and on the one hand he has these weird, crazy high standards for men where he's always screaming at them. He was always screaming at the men in his church to be better, but then in other ways he just gives men a pass on things and puts you know these kind of intense expectations on women. And so it's like he he's very all over the place in terms of what he expects of men. You know he expects no. them to get jobs and have careers and whatever, but apparently doesn't expect them to repent much of things. You know,
2: it's yeah, just and that they that, Yeah, I will say the one thing that, you know, it's listening to these things that are always kind of odd, because in my head, I'm like, okay, Mark Driscoll's the bad guy, which I should not want to think because I do believe he is a fellow Christian, right? And I should want to be at peace with him, right? Um, But, you know, so much of the stuff I just like, but some of the stuff when he was like, okay, guys, get off of video games. Like, I think a, I think some of the stuff he was saying was really correct. I think the tone was probably really bad. But as a woman, you know, I'm happily married now. I'm, I love my husband so much. But as going through as, like, a single woman in my early, mid, late 20s to early 30s, we're looking around on a lot of guys being like, oh, some of these guys probably could have, like, really benefited from a kick in the butt a little bit, right? And so there are some of those things where I'm like, oh, yeah, you should probably just, like, stop, you know, stop being friends with women and start dating them. Like, you need to stop waiting. You need to find a woman to date and to marry, and you need to pursue this and not just kind of be like, well, you know, eventually a hot enough woman will come by, and then I'll, then I'll, I'll decide to, to get my stuff together right, which is kind of some of the feeling that being a single woman in the church for over a decade, <laughs> it sometimes feels like they're doing. So I I do get some of the stuff, but obviously the tone is super inappropriate. And especially on some of the ways they would do this in terms of like, we're having a secret guys meeting. No, no women are wussy guys. No women or men who wear skirts are allowed. Like it, you know, I just, it just doesn't even, like, I just can't comprehend that. Like that mindset all the time. Like it's so aggressive is just so angry all the time and you know you're listening to it and my you know not that i have any sort of qualification to diagnose but my my job up in life is to basically is to basically work with people with a really complex trauma and i'm listening to this i'm like oh this man's got some seriously unrepresented like unaddressed trauma from his childhood that he just has this anger that is just sitting there
1: well and i think katie going back to sort of what you were saying some of the, the focus on a wife um, and, and, you know, is she letting herself go? Is she maintaining, you know, the way that she ought to look um, really fits with some of what he teaches, I think, about sex in, in real marriage and in some of the other stuff that he taught, um, which is just this, this failure to examine whether your expectations or desires have been formed in a sinful way by the cultural or culture around you. Um, Is your expectation for what a woman should look like? How much of that is shaped by what you've seen in media and what what you've you've grown up steeped in Um, when you're when you're deciding as a couple which kinds of behaviors and, and activities you're comfortable with? In the bedroom. Um, there's never a thought of like, hey, why do you want to do this? Is it because you've seen this depicted in a pornographic way? Uh, is it because it feels illicit? And so that's what's arousing about it. Like maybe you need to unpack that a little bit before you just ask, is this permitted by scripture or specifically forbidden by scripture? And then ask your wife to participate in a fantasy that ultimately has at its roots a pornographic basis. And and the same thing I think with some of that stuff about appearance where it's how much of this is you think that the only attractive way for a woman to look is what the culture has has, has presented to you instead of finding beauty in the wife of your youth who has, you know, in his in his ideal world right born you children and cared for those children um, and I'm not saying that it's not possible to to fail to steward our bodies well um, and to fail to think of our partners in terms of that. But that's a mutual obligation. Um, husbands and wives both have an obligation to steward their body well because their bodies are gifts to one another in that um, union of marriage. I mean, we just didn't ever hear that. And it's not because men never let themselves go. It's just not. Um, so, I mean, I think that that those are some some questions that we uh, that I certainly had. Um, I will say again, uh, Katie, you mentioned this already, but we do have an entire episode about real marriage. That's episode 8.1. Um, we also have a wonderful episode, an interview that, that Katie uh, did with uh, Sheila Gregoire about a recent book called The Great Sex Rescue that specifically addresses some of the problems with the way sex has been taught in the evangelical church that dives into a lot more of this um, than what we have time to today. Um, so real quickly, um, before I go on to the next point, I do want to double check that I'm not skipping over anything you really wanted to say. Anything else on the complementarian nature of Mars Hill before we dive into the next question?
0: Um, I was just going to say, and I forgot about it until you mentioned it, but thank you for reminding me. One thing that we talk about on the interview with Sheila that I think was happening at Mars Hill um, and that I think is not actually complementarian is this idea of what Sheila would call the obligation sex message. Um, and I can't remember her name. Her pseudonym might have been Lisa. Um, and one of the last, I think it was in the aftermath episode, she talked about, um, they had two women that they had interviewed, but, um, one of the women was talking about being there and, you know, constantly, you know, having, being taught that you can never really say no to your husband. You need to be available to your husband for sex anytime he wants it. Um, and because that's your duty, it's what you should do as a wife. That's what it means to be servant hearted and all these kinds of things and the damage it did to her marriage. And I, I think that's another thing about that church that is not actually complementarian, because if you are never allowed to say no to sex, you're not actually both equally important in the marriage, in which case we're in an authoritarian or a patriarchal space where really the husband's the only one who matters, so the wife always has to accommodate him. Um, and so I think that's another place where those kind of authoritarian um, or more patriarchal roots are showing <laughs> in Driscoll, um, is that that kind of enforcement of, a, of an obligation sex message at Marcel. So.
1: That's a good point. Thanks, Katie. Um, And I will say another related episode that listeners might be interested in, um, although maybe not quite as directly related. We did an episode about Mike Pence and the Billy Graham rule um, that talked about how we view women, how we view... um, uh, men you know, being in the same room with a woman and tending to view a woman either as an enemy or a potential sex object, as opposed to, say, a sister in Christ, and, um, and how to think through that. And I think some of those same themes we also see in the way that Mark Driscoll seems to interact with, uh, with women in his church. Um, our next question that I wanted to ask, because we will just be here all night if we, if we let ourselves. Um, our next question is, does the podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, does it have a positive view of complementarianism? Sarah, what do you think?
2: I'm not sure that the podcast directly addresses it. Uh, Mike Cosper does, I think, a very good job of being uh, providing very good facts, but he does not editorialize that much, I don't think. And so I think they do a very good job of presenting it and letting the, I keep wanting to say reader, the listener draw his or her own conclusions. Um, I think it would be, I think if you, I think it would probably be difficult to listen to this and probably come out thinking really great things about complementarianism. Like if you were, I think this is the kind of thing that if you were, very very strong egalitarian, and you listen to this, you'd be like, oh, see, they're all like that. Like I think it would be very easy to 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 think that if you're already egalitarian, to be like, oh, see, they're all like that. But I don't know. I I don't feel that uh that the that there's a very strong editorial voice on that specifically, or is that just me?
1: No, I mean, I think I think you're right that Cosper tries not to give that impression. In fact, so much so that I had read some criticism that said he was too easy on complementarians and that he was pulling his punches and being overly kind out of a desire not to upset influential people or just many of CT's readers who might be um, more theologically aligned with Mars Hill. Um, and that, so there was actually some criticism that was saying he, he wasn't um, as, as critical as he should have been. Um, the one the one thing that made me take notice a little bit is that it seemed like most of the criticisms of the way gender was handled um, at Mars Hill, the talking heads that he had come on, they were almost exclusively people who sounded like they came down on a more egalitarian side of the issue. Not necessarily explicitly, but that was the impression that I got. Um, and I would have loved to hear other complementarians standing up and saying, like like Katie's just been doing now, and saying, wait a minute, that's not complementarianism, that's authoritarianism, um, or, or otherwise defending, but from within complementarianism, and I just don't know how much we got that. I felt like it was a lot more of people further to the left um, of complementarianism, so to speak, um, who, were, who were offering those criticisms rather than folks within the complementarian camp. Um, he did mention and at one point that the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood had labeled real marriage as a do not read. So I appreciated that. That's a complementarian publication saying, hey, wait a minute, we have issues with, with Mark Driscoll's writing. Um, but there weren't really anyone, any individuals who, who were clearly identified. You know, there wasn't anyone from the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood who was talking about it. And he may have invited those people and they may have explicitly declined because they didn't want to call out Mars Hill. Um, and that, that may be what's going on there. But, um, uh, but I, I just would have liked to see those, those, I would have liked to hear those voices.
0: I was surprised that they didn't have anything that they didn't include any of Wendy also in some of those later episodes to talk about that. Like she was there a little bit at the very beginning. Cause she's been writing about that stuff for years. And as far as I know is still complimentary herself personally, but like, I was kind of surprised I figured, Oh, she'll be back later. Like to talk about how women were treated in the church, but she wasn't. And that may have been her. I mean, she may not have wanted to be, you know, like she may have only wanted to talk a little bit at the very beginning, but, um, I think, I think that I would I would agree with you guys. I think Cosper seemed like he was trying to be even-handed. But I think that, Alexis, I think there were more people who kind of came down on the other side. Um, now, in some cases, I think I wouldn't blame those people because they, they were driven to that other side because of damage. Um, but it was interesting to me that they... Either didn't go look for, or couldn't find someone who'd been at Mars Hill and had been a member and witnessed all this craziness and had left and had still kept the complementarian theology in the sense of, you know, like in its most basic sense, woman's not going to be a lead pastor, and also we believe in, you know, that there is male headship in marriage or whatever. I because surely there have to be people like that. There have to be people who were at Mars Hill who continued, you know, following that theology. Even though they left that damaging environment and the way that it was taught there, but I mean, I get either they couldn't find them or they didn't go looking for them,
1: or as you said, they, they were disinclined to participate in in the podcast. And and there's a there was a piece that was put out later, um, I think it was in the in this Christianity Today piece um, after the podcast finished that basically said. They had a lot of people come forward as the podcast grew more popular, but they also had people who had come forward who were like, you know, when this was going to be a few thousand people listening, I was fine to talk about it, but I'm not really fine telling my story to a million people. So um, I think it's fair to say that the popularity may also have pushed some people uh, away from participating. But I think it raises a related question, which is complementarians spend, um, Spend a lot of time pointing out the errors uh, that they see in those to the, like, uh, the, for lack of a better word, to the left, the, the egalitarian. So I, I've been part of complementarian churches and they'll spend a lot of time explaining why egalitarianism is wrong. Um, do complementarians do a good job of pointing out and criticizing um, the, uh, the problems in those to their so called right, um, that is, veering more towards authorita- authoritarianism or other distortions of complementarianism uh, to the to the right. Uh, Do they do a good job of criticizing those um, those views? Should they? And how? What do you think?
0: I think definitely not. Um, This is one of my kind of beefs with the complementarian sphere in general, is I think that there is not nearly enough um, inclination to look within and to try to 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 kind of expose those kind of urges towards a, a more authoritarian mindset. Um, I think that there is a lot more worry about the outside. And one of the ways I think you can see that is I think that, um, generally women who were formally more progressive Christian or, um, were living a, a life that was as uncomplementarian as you could get somebody like Rosario Butterfield, who then migrated over to the complementarian side, um, women like that tend to be really, really celebrated. Women on the inside of the complementarian sphere asking even mild kind of questions about, you know, hypocrisies or things that they see that are frustrating or that ways they feel like women aren't being treated well or whatever tend to be seen as a threat and um, tend to be, you know, rigorously questioned and seen as, you know, just like a step away from just becoming an egalitarian. And that's really frustrating to me. Um, I think that And I mean, not that we shouldn't embrace people who come over from another side. That's not what I'm saying. But you should be able to we should be able to um, to to look at concerns from within. Um, And I think there are all kinds of ways that. But I think one reason that there's not a lot of talk about um, a lot of criticism towards the right, like you said, is because there are some some people who are really, really, really big deal complementarians who, you know, have their kind of theology in line, but who are to me acting in ways that don't seem exactly complementarian, but people that you would, you know, nobody would ever want to call out. And one of the things that drives me the the, the most crazy, which, and I don't want to name names because I don't be, want to be a jerk, but there are, I have seen a kind of trend in the last few years of some very prominent male complementarian pastors minimizing or kind of undercutting um, women uh, in the Bible as an attempt to try to keep current women in their place like you'll see you'll see um in books well actually no i will name one name because this book is terrible um and you know he's written a million other books he's not going to suffer for me saying it's bad john MacArthur has a book called god's high calling for women and in that book he spends a, a decent amount of time talking about how all the women called prophetesses in the bible they weren't really i mean they don't count because they didn't have sustained prophetic ministry so really it doesn't count And just this attempt to act like that none of that really even matters because there's this phobia of any even a biblical woman appearing to have any authority at all. So, you know, lest, lest any woman in the Bible seem to have any authority, we're going to talk about how these women weren't really prophetesses and how Deborah wasn't really in charge. And, you know, this attempt to try to change Bible interpretations, to try to bolster ideas, you know, because it's a fear of that left side. And and it, and it pushes people into doing things that, to me, are going too far to the right, that are attempting to suppress, you know um, – women, even biblical women who aren't even around anymore, to try to make sure that the rest of us stay in line. And that's, that's frustrating to me. Um, I think if we're going to criticize outwardly, we also need to be willing to criticize inwardly.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? It's, it's so much easier to rail against those people out there and what they're getting wrong. And no one in your church is going to be offended <laughs> if you say, aren't those people out in the culture terrible? Um, and I've been in churches that have done this and I've raised the question of, hey, do you really think that the the tendency within this church, like the way that we would be drawn into error is to that? Because I feel like that's not where this, you know, where the people here are going to be drawn. We've, we've already, like, we're already in this church. We've already made this determination. Like, it's fine to help us have good tools to go out and, and to engage with people and explain why we, we've reached our theological conclusions. But if we're tempt- going to be tempted to error... Where are we going to be tempted to err? Aren't we going to be tempted this other way? Aren't we going to be tempted maybe to, um, you know, if, if it's a church that has uh, more a historical uh, uh, pattern of more more conservative positions where you're like, hey, aren't we more likely to say women can't be ushers, uh, even though there's not a, you know, a, a complementarian reason why that has to be the case or women can't you know, distribute communion? Um, like, isn't that more likely that that's where we would err? And we actually need to expand our understanding of women's ministry in order to, to, to be, reach the fullness of what complementarian theology believes, um, rather than being worried about being too expansive. Like, that's not the problem that we have. Um, so I think it's important to have, like you said, if you're going to talk about the problems out there, and I think that is a helpful thing to do having that like where is the spec where is the stuff that we can do and it it certainly fits with what we saw with Mars Hill right where anyone who was raising an issue and saying hey we think Mark should have other elders who confront him or we think that there should be accountability or anything like that was immediately treated as a traitor um and and a divisive busybody. um so I think that certainly is always a warning sign in any institution if uh, if trying to raise concerns about um about the ways that your your institution from within is is in need of improvement. Um, if that is 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 treated with hostility, then then I think you have a problem. But um, what about you, Sarah? Do you have any advice for us in figuring out how to police sort of both of our boundaries, both of our borders, to the left and to the right within complementarianism?
2: Good lord! If we could actually figure that out, then we could solve a huge portion of the things that afflict us. Um, in our individual denominations and in our individual political parties and all that Um, I I do completely agree that it is I mean we we see it with everything it is much easier to it's much easier to look at somebody um, at the church across town that like oh my goodness can you believe that she would have Bare shoulders at church or wear spaghetti straps. It's so much easier to do that, right? Um, than to look at the things on our own side and be like, Oh yeah, this is a problem as well. Um, because that has, because that makes us have to confront and makes us have to seriously think about why we think things and why, you know, and I think that's a problem that the church has in general. A lot of times is that we, we don't we do not spend enough time talking about why we believe the things that we believe. Um, And so it's definitely something that we need to do more. And I think it's the kind of thing that this podcast was designed to really work on, but it's definitely not a thing that I actually, that I think it's not anything I ever see it talked about in any mainstream either publication or anything like that. It's only the kind of thing that, I would have a conversation with my friends about it. Right. But I've never seen a conversation, you know, in any sort of real public forum, except obviously for for this. But like I also said, unlike you ladies, I am like, I don't read a lot of like, I don't read books by other pastors. Like I, you know, and so maybe it is going on and I just don't know it because I don't engage in that kind of contemporary Christian culture as much as others
1: do. Well, I think that's actually a really good segue to the next question that I had, which is we've we've listened to the the entire podcast, what are some good takeaways from the podcast for complementarians or or relative that relate to complementarianism? Like what are good ways to use this and do something? Um, so things that might be like, what would you like to see happen as a result of the podcast, or what conversations should we be having in complementarian circles in light of the podcast? But the, the overarching question is, what are some good takeaways? Ways to ways to use this podcast as a jumping off point. Well,
0: I think that one of the one of the things that I hope happens after this is that there is more consideration on the complementarian side of the ways that. A lot of times we are leaning on cultural standards instead of biblical theology, like you said earlier, Alexis. That was one of the things that was so distinctive about Driscoll is that so many of his standards for men just seem to have been based on himself and what he thought was important. Um, I mean, we, you know, I think we talked about this in the Real Marriage um, episode, but. yep, we did. If we okay, yeah, and we, but we said, you know, that I mean, if you follow all of his, if you try to, if you, if you look at all of his rules for men, the things that he says men have to do to be good men, then Jesus wasn't a good man because there's no, there's no paradigm in his kind of version of masculinity for a single man, a man who chooses singleness, even to serve the Lord. Um, he says, you know, men need to, um, leave the house, get a career, then get married, then have babies. That's the sequence. And, you know, kind of makes hay about how, you know, you have to, um, which, and he tries to act like that it's always been this way since Bible times when, you know, um, back then and today in many cultures, the the normal thing is for um, a man to live with his parents until he marries, you know, um, this idea. And also to me, I said this to David last night, and I didn't say this in the original real marriage kind of um, episode we did, but to me, it seems like a really culturally myopic standard to say that the only way to be a good man is to move out of your parents' house, get a career, and then once you've established that, get then get married. Because, like, that's not financially reachable for a lot of people <laughs> most men or women or young people period don't have and aren't going to have the money to move out live on their own pay rent by themselves until they find someone to marry you know um or like we did say back in that episode what if you want to get married but you can't find somebody who wants to marry you <laughs> like there are all kinds of barriers to achieving his his perfect Yeah, that was 15 years of my life <laughs> Yes. Like, there's so many barriers to achieving his perfect vision of masculinity. And, and, you know, and it doesn't fit. It's not a garment that will fit you know, a lot of men. And I think that's a sign that it's cultural. It's not biblical. And I, you know, and I think especially with masculinity, because that was his big thing. um, I mean, I think his church was doing it to women, too, though, with, you know, this this very rigid idea of what a woman needs to be, what a wife should be. Um, So that's one of the things I hope happens is that people who listen will then turn that focus around on themselves and their own churches and go, okay, to what degree are my ideas of masculinity? proper biblical masculinity and femininity informed by culture, and to what degree are they informed by what's actually on the pages in my Bible?
2: I think that is an incredibly wise way to word that. Uh, because I've, I spent a lot of time in singles, and one of the things that we talk about in singles constantly, or I, when I did spend all the time in singles, is you know how much of what we expect in life and in dating is based off of you know the culture versus what is really biblical and it becomes extra confusing because nobody because those are hard questions and nobody really wants to talk about them um but i i do think that's a very eloquent way to say that
1: thanks yeah i think in general like my my hope coming out of this podcast would be for a lot of self-examination and self-reflection within complementarian circles um, to um, to really think about, um, you know, we're, we're really good at rebuffing the theological criticisms of egalitarians. Like, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on, here's why our theology is right, but this is an opportunity for the complementarian churches to really hear and heed practical criticisms of complementarianism as applied. Um, and I, I really want to see see churches listen to that, heed that criticism and not dismiss it because of the source, but say, and not just say, oh, well, that's a one-off or an outlier, but say, okay, we need to think about this. We need to think about what steps we want to take in order to live out more faithfully the complementarian theology that, that we teach. Um and I've said it before, but like it, it is an extra hardship uh, if all of your sort of top tier of leadership, if your lead pastor and your elders are men, they're going to have a different picture of the world based on their lived experience and and what what they've what they've been through in life as men. Um, that means they can't just talk amongst themselves and have a complete picture of what life is like in the church and what the needs are of their church because they're not just pastors to men like them; they're pastors to women. And so that may mean that they need to do what well, does mean they need to do more homework. They need to be going in and, and seeking out opportunities to listen to female voices and listen to female experiences and um, and really just do that extra work and not just say complementarianism.
2: Doesn't just need to be like their wives.
1: No, no. Yeah, exactly. And it, it needs to be varied. It can't just be. Um, we have ticked the box of complementarianism just by keeping women out of the pulpit. Check, we're done. That's not. That's not it. Um, that is not elevating the relationship between between the sexes to the kind of mutual and and complementary um, way, way that we want it to be. So I really want people to hear that criticism. Um, I know. Um, Sarah, you said that there aren't a lot of voices that are calling for that kind of self-reflection. Um, I've really enjoyed reading what Jen Wilkin has read about about this topic, calling churches to develop, say, for example, the teaching gifts of their women within a complementarian context rather than just pretending that women don't have teaching gifts. Um, Beth Moore has written some uh, on this as well, although her particular cultural position right now. She's kind of, in some churches, she's viewed as an outsider. Um, Jen Wilkin is still for many, I think, able to speak as, as a fellow insider. Um, although it wouldn't be surprised me if that shifts at some point too. Um, Katie, I really appreciate your point about singleness. That's a great conversation for complementarians to have, to make sure that we are upholding a biblical view of singleness. Um, so I think that's another opportunity for us to, to take this as a challenge um, and humbly try to examine ways that we can better live out the theology. I don't, I don't think, well, this is what we'll go into next, is what are bad takeaways from the podcast? So, for example, I, I think a bad takeaway from the podcast would be complementarian theology is terrible and we need to just kick it to the curb. Um, but I do think thinking about how we can live out this good theology in a way that is better and more loving um, would certainly be a good takeaway. So with that, what are some bad takeaways that we could see people um, take from the podcast?
2: Well, that one, that all Christians are like this. And one of the things that inevitably happens whenever there is any Any kind of large story or anything uh, that becomes part of contemporary, you know, that becomes part of the larger cultural zeitgeist is it becomes a thing that, well, this represents all Christians now. All, what, three and a half billion of us, I think. Um, And so this idea that all Christian men are like this, all women are feel oppressed. And that all churches are kind of inherently unstable. And that the thing that is that all pastors are obsessed with is growth. And that's obviously simply not true. But I do think that because they focus so much on Mark's obsession with growth, Mark's obsession with his sales, all this kind of stuff that If you were somebody who just happened to kind of sort of like, well, I'll listen to this, you know, you saw it pop in the top 10 or something, but you didn't have grounded real knowledge of how healthy functioning churches work. Like, man, what is going on with all these people, right?
0: Yeah, well, and it was it was so sad to kind of listen to those episodes and to hear that so many of these people who worked at Mars Hill are just not Christian anymore, which, and you know, you could have conversations about if, if people were to begin with, or, you know, if, if, you know, I think for some, especially some of his media guys, I think it was more of a job, you know, they talked about being drawn to him for various reasons, but I yeah, think it
2: sounded yeah. like a, it sounded like hundred uh, percent, a job for some of them. And like, yes, well, I like, grew up in the church. It, you know, my mom really liked that. I was working there, but especially like whoever was the initial guy who was telling them, like, you got to give this media stuff. And like, whoever that initial person was, there, there was no, you know, talk about being drawn to him because he was funny and all of this. But it, it did not sound like it, you know, it sounded like the people who were getting the most money and the most attention and the most kind of attention from the pastor might have been ones who would not have actually may not have actually been professed Christians, which I think is just a huge shame.
0: Yeah. And that's I mean, I think that's another bad takeaway is that, you know, uh, that well, and and I think that's. Well, I should say that's part of another bad takeaway, which is that you know it sounds like not this is not something I took away or this is something I took away that I learned from the the episodes, not something I would then carry forward in the future, but it seems like what was happening all along at Mars Hill is that people were going, man, there's red flags flying all over this guy, but but you know, but the gospel is 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 being spread, and people are coming to Christ, you know um and I mean that was true, you know, Cosper talked about how a lot of people came to faith, but I really really liked his question that he said near the very end, one of the last few episodes, which is that we have to then ask, OK, but what gospel is he preaching and what is he converting people to? Because if, you know, even if like in your right, Alexis, there are times when he have, would have these like, you know, shining moments of giving a really clear presentation of the actual gospel. But if it's surrounded by just like this constant car crash of anger and rigid expectations for gender and all of these other like uglinesses, then, you know, um, it's not I'm going to say it's not Worth it. And so I I would hope that um, a a realization would happen in uh, all churches, not just complementary, in any kind of church, that you really, really have to. Pay attention to red flags like that, even if it seems like there are being good results, because I do think there has been a tendency in the whole church in the past, but especially in the 20th century and especially in the media age to ignore some real red flags about various leaders because they are popular. And that's really that's a shame. And that's really sad. And so I really hope that, you know, people listen to this and, 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 and absorb that idea that we need to pay attention to red flags and don't listen to it and go, well, Driscoll was an outlier or he was just a bad guy or no, it happens all the time. And, you know, in local churches, it happens everywhere. Um, so, you know, I hope that people will will take away that, you know, really paying attention to red flags and not just giving people a pass because they're getting, quote, good results.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it was, was it Timothy Dalrymple, the um, uh, CT editor who was interviewed at one point, you talked about working on the Ravi Zacharias story and and having sort of story after story of people in public positions of influence who had then public failings. Um, Bill Hybels was mentioned. Um, obviously, um, there's there's just, I mean, you can sit there and list a bunch of different names because there's no shortage of people who've done that. So, um, I think that's certainly fair. And I think it certainly is is valid to say um that um as believers we should remember that means matter. We don't say the ends justify the means. God is intensely interested in how what our means are, how we behave, um more so than what we achieve. He's not a do whatever it takes as long as it, you know, gets the word out kind of uh, approach. And um and ultimately, that God doesn't need Mark Driscoll to save people, and I think there's that that view of like, well, we need him because without him, God can't do this work. That <laughs> um, he is necessary, and God has other tools, so to speak, uh, in His toolbox, um, and He doesn't need any one of us. Um, so there is none of us who is indispensable. Um, and if we start to to have those red flags, like it's it's it is 100 worth it to say, wait a minute, take take a step back. Um, we need to figure out whether or not you're still still fit for ministry, whether we need to, to continue with that. Um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting to, to watch and say, what would be some things that, that I could see people taking away? Like you said, Sarah, well, all Christians are terrible. The solution maybe is to just be, um, to be uh, an atheist, to be someone who is completely secular because religion is bad. That would be a, a bad takeaway. Um, I mentioned before, Um, Basically, what I'm asking is if you look at Mars Hill as a problem, Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll as a problem, what is the solution? Is the solution, well, they shouldn't have been believers and then that wouldn't have happened or they shouldn't have been complementarian. If everyone had just been egalitarian, they would have been fine. I think that's a bad takeaway. I don't think that's the solution to Mars Hill. Uh, Another one that we haven't talked about a lot, but I think is so relevant, uh, particularly in our cultural moment, is, is headship, authority and submission bad is the solution to Mars Hill to do away with authority in any way that we can. Um, This idea of of authority and the ways that Mark Driscoll, according to the podcast, wielded that authority in abusive ways. Um, But he's also a picture of someone who was not under authority. And so I think it's really easy to think what's bad is having people in charge, having uh, men in positions of authority, what we need is to just have everybody be able to do it. And if we can just um, you know, sort of level the playing field as much as possible, that's how we prevent abuse. Um, and I think, I mean, as a complementarian, I don't think authority is the bad guy. I don't think that that's the problem. Um, and I think they'll talk more about this on, or will have talked more about this, I guess, at this point, uh, on uh, City of Man, where they're going to look more, I think, at, at, at the church polity and some of the ways that it was structured. But I think what we think about authority in our current cultural moment makes it really tempting to think that the authority, that, that the problem is is authority. Um, and, and to sort of, you know, if you think about people who could deflate Conflate complementarianism with authority authoritarianism. I think it's really easy to conflate authority in any form with authoritarianism, um, and I think that that would also be um, an unhelpful takeaway. Although I think again, it's worth interrogating how do we do authority well as believers. Um, and I know I think another another way you could you could take away um, another bad takeaway would be to say. Uh, this is all a result of sexual repression, and they just needed to to be freer and not be so down on pornography or or other things, and and that the biblical sexual ethic is the problem. Everyone needs to be less repressed and freer, and that would all sort itself out. I think that would also be a a bad takeaway from <laughs> uh, from the podcast. Anything else that you wanted to talk about about ways sort of wrong lessons to to take from? from the, the podcast.
2: And the only thing else I could maybe think of is, you know, we talk talked a lot about some of the sexual, uh, you know, the relationships with women and everything. I think the idea that wanting to grow your church is bad, right? Like he was really obsessed with it, but church growth in general, we would consider a good thing. Cause that means that in, if it's done in a healthy way, new believers are coming in, right? You know, I I've never been one that's ever wanted to, I've never been to what anyone would ever call close to a mega church, and Lord knows the one, Sometimes the times I've attended with others, I'm just always slightly like, "Oh my God." Um, but I think that that there are that growing your church is a good and healthy thing, and and so I think it's one of those things that there's just there's when you listen to this. You know I, I've grown up in what I, I would like to consider fairly healthy churches my whole life that either my parents picked or I was able to pick for myself and being able and knowing what the difference is because there are so many things that just because just because Mark Driscoll said it was important doesn't mean it's bad because we don't like him right
0: That's a good point um, and I, I think it kind of goes with something else too like you said, you know, things that he believed that were true, they're not bad because he said them because, yeah, because he's unlikable. And I think because I think Morris Hill, more than anything else, was not about theology. It was about personality. It was about his personality. And I think that that's Occult
2: personality. Right. And yeah, those yeah, things yeah. always collapse when someone leaves. And n- not that I will necessarily name a name, but there is a I'm from Waco. Well, I, I lived in Waco for several years and there is a church in that town That is an absolute cult of personality and not nearly to the extent I've never heard any, that preacher ever say anything in the misogynistic way Mark Driscoll ever has never. But you know, when it is all about the head preacher and not about the theology, that church doesn't have strong foundations because we say that the foundation is Christ and the foundation is God. But what the foundation really is, is, Cool music, light shows, and like this preach and like this preacher, like, oh my god, he's he's so cool, he wears flip flops on stage, right? Like that's what it really becomes about, and less about the word, because inevitably when those preachers leave, those churches collapse, right? They don't find another healthy pastor who like the pastor's I mean, I say this obviously, that's obviously a very like Baptist way to do that. You know, and that's the other thing. You only really find these in basically Baptist churches or community churches, whatnot. You don't really have this problem with Anglicans or Presbyterians or Methodists or anybody else who there is a head, right? There is a bishop or there is a episcopal line that is appointing someone right. And so those individuals have to submit to someone, right? You can only get this in a congregational model, right?
0: Yeah, and and, and that's what I was thinking about, too, when you're talking about authority before Alexis, is that there's, there's, you know, there's different kinds of authority, and I feel like the good kind of authority that operates that should what should be operating in any kind of church but you know and and obviously happens in a complementary church is shared authority so you know we're currently in a, a Baptist Church but for a time when we lived in Athens we were in a PCA church and I always enjoyed that because I had always been in congregational churches and it was fascinating to me to go to the meetings and to and for everybody to sit down and for them to bust out the rules of order and everybody to be making motions and everybody's got a question and it's a long meeting because everybody has thoughts <laughs> um, and I thought that was so interesting because I was so used to our congregational churches voting on things. There would be votes, but like, usually it was just everybody voting to affirm whatever the, you know, the preacher decided or whatever. So I think at Mars Hill there was this gesture towards shared governance because you had elders, but it sounds like that up until the very end, right at the very end, they started, you know, breaking ranks. And they had, you know, the noble nine writing a letter and, you know, calling out Driscoll. But for a long time it seems like that the authority in his church was just, was him. It was a sole authority rather than a shared authority. And I think that that's a huge red flag in any kind of church. Um, but I think it can be particularly dangerous. In a complementarian church, because in a complementarian church like Driscoll's, which leans authoritarian, like you said, Alexis, you're automatically excluding the viewpoints or the opinions of any woman there. So you're not going to be listening to any women who say, hey, something's wrong here. And if all the men who were part of his shared authority structure are kind of captive to his personality or too afraid to break ranks and, and, and you know contradict him, then what he says is going to go. And if he's kind of misogynistic, women are going to suffer. And obviously the men suffered too. That was one of the most heartbreaking things to me was to listen to these men talk about having panic attacks, listening to the the episodes, the earlier episodes of the podcast, I guess, like hearing his voice and screaming. And um, that was really sad Um, and proof that it wasn't just women who were damaged there. It was women and men who were damaged there. So I think that, you know, that's that's the key. The key with authority is not like is all authority bad, but. That there are gradations of authority and that, you know, it totally depends on what kind of authority structures you have happening in your church. Um, I mean, I think you could absolutely have an egalitarian church with a woman in charge that could go wrong in some of these same ways if she's not submitting herself to shared authority.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a good point. And I think it it relates to and and I think, like I said, I think they'll talk about this someone's city of man but that in order for whatever your authority structure is to work uh it's not just having the structure but it's also having qualified individuals in those positions so it doesn't do any good to have uh, like you said a body of elders who are supposed to hold someone accountable if they're not going to do that because they have decided that the best thing for the church is for mark driscoll to preach every sunday no matter what um and that there is no circumstance that would justify taking action against him well then they're not going to be able to be providing that meaningful accountability um and, uh, and that, and that can certainly take place, w- whatever your authority structure is. If you have a congregation that's not engaged and not willing to be the authority, to be the, the accountability, um, then that's not going to work. If you have, you know, if you have bad relationships with the, with the bishop or with, uh, the, the synod or whatever you have, um, it is both the structure, but then also having people in place who are, who are qualified and willing to do the work of that role, um, And it sounds like there were some people like that at Mars Hill, but there were a lot of people who, who, like I said, had had made that calculus and keep Mark in the pulpit was was always the um, the conclusion that they had uh, that they had reached. Well, any uh, closing thoughts before we wrap up our episode, because I think we are at time, if not a little past.
2: So I guess one thing I would uh, ask y'all, because is there just something that y'all heard that you're like? Oh, my God, I cannot believe that that happened. Like, what was the most that that y'all heard in kind of the series?
0: I mean, I had a couple. One of them was when I think it was Jen Smith was talking about, you know, saying something very mild to part of one of the leadership about Mars Hill, the business versus Mars Hill, the church. And then like the next day, you know, being like told, you know, her husband being told that she's grasping for power <laughs> for making a very mild, you know, uh, gentle criticism. Um, and, and then and then her husband being told that maybe she he sh- that she seems troubled and that he should get her a psych evaluation. I was like my job was on the floor um, that one and a kind of a funnier story, but no less to me, you know, no less indicative of Driscoll's general demeanor and how he treats people is when I think it was Jesse, One of his media guys, when he talked about them going to Turkey to like film him reading Ephesians like at Ephesus and, you know, the bus pulling up to a really fancy resort and him getting off with his family and being like, bye, guys, and sending them all to like a crappy flea bag motel, like not having any concern that they're. And because he said that was when that was the moment that he realized he doesn't care about me at all. Like all he cares is what he can get out of me. Like, and that was one of those moments that I was thinking like, who, who does that? Like, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, those were kind of my, a couple of my ones that, that really just, I was, that, those are some of the times I paused it and told David, you're not going to believe this <laughs> because he wasn't listening. He's not on any of the episodes, so he didn't listen to the podcast, but that I had a few times when I paused it and was like, you got, I have to tell you what just, what I just heard. Cause I just can't believe it.
1: Sarah, what about you? So
2: I think for me, the, the one that the initial one, was the whole thing of him having like an alter ego on the message board.
0: Yes, I forgot about that.
2: So that's uh and so dear listeners, uh there's I guess there's like an there's a Mars Hill message board and he has this alter ego apparently named William Wallace the second. And it is just wild the kind of stuff that like he clearly was was wanting to say was like okay, I'm gonna be able to, I'm gonna be able to do it this way, and just very misogynistic, very homophobic, like, and stuff that like just didn't need to be said, that had no correlation to anything that was like going on in the rest of the conversation, that he just clearly wanted to insert these very inappropriate opinions, um, and when I and that I think we find that out in like the first or second episode or something like that, and it was one of those things that like after that I was like okay, this guy's actually kind of a coward. And, like, after that, after that kind of clicked in my head, a lot of the other stuff that he would do would make sense to me because I had already been like, okay, he's kind of a coward and is actually does stuff. Like, he has this very weird passive-aggressive tendency where, like, he's always all about, like, I am this honorable man and I do confrontation, but yet he's very passive aggressive about stuff almost that he might say in an insulting way womanly right in how passive aggressive he is about certain things in terms of like we're firing you for saying that oh it would be good if he had other men he could talk to and you know just uh oh oh and i guess the other thing was the the demon trials that was that was crazy
1: yeah i i would say my Point that I was—I mean, the the demon trials were definitely not something that I was had experienced in my particular wing of the uh, evangelical church, and I definitely had a lot of questions about that. I also felt like it was maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, um, and a little bit—I don't know—it felt a little bit like almost voyeuristic to be like, "Hey, let's make fun of this viewpoint um, within within a certain." types of charismatic churches so I felt a little uncomfortable because it didn't seem as related to some of the other stuff but uh, other than the claiming to have heard from God, having a divine revelation and therefore being above being questioned which is a whole other issue of authority um, the, the the anecdote that I found sort of deeply horrifying was when, sort of like what you said Katie with the story in Turkey but the one in London where his the guy he was there with had the double eye infection and and I know there's a lot of, a lot of what makes it horrifying is the way the story is told and I don't have the complete picture so you know he he had, this guy has a double eye infection and Mark Driscoll is like yeah whatever I don't care I'm gonna go do my speaking engagement and some other pastor who he has met in London like walks him by the hand this basically blind person through the streets of London to get him to an eye hospital. Now I don't know it may be that Mark like asked this other pastor to help him uh, so there there may be more to the to the story but but just as presented with the guy he's there with. Is, is in pain, has had this medical issue, Mark is unconcerned. A complete stranger ends up taking him to the hospital. Mark's only question for him is, are you contagious? And at no point during the trip does Mark even pray for him. And that that was just sort of like the turkey trip where it was like, man, that's just a complete pastoral failure. <laughs> um, but I will say on a more positive note, the, the thing that I found um, most encouraging um, was the the story of, uh, of uh, Sutton, the, the pastor who had been sort of the, the hatchet man for, um, for Mark Driscoll towards the end and had had done a lot to hurt a lot of people as a result, um, to hear how he had been, before all the podcast stuff, going and, and privately and quietly, Repenting and making amends and apologizing and just trying to to reconcile with people that he had hurt and and when he would hear someone on the podcast talk about how he'd hurt them and he hadn't really thought about it or hadn't realized it that he would reach out to them and if they were willing, he would talk to them and he would apologize and he would repent um and that he didn't expect that they would necessarily forgive him, but he was that was what he was hoping for, but it just such a posture of humility and repentance and such a contrast. Um, to what we've seen so far publicly from Mark Driscoll. These two men who sinned against um, people as, as a result of or in their position of leadership, and one is taking the road of, of denying, uh, um, from their perspective, abandoning his congregation and just starting anew um, without ever changing or repenting, and the other who, although more, more um, uh, anonymous, most of us don't know his name unless you've been listening to the podcast, was just humbly seeking out those he'd wronged um, for no other reason than he wanted to repent. He wanted to apologize. He wanted to to make it right. And I just thought that was a beautiful picture of repentance and a lovely contrast to the lack of humility that we saw so much uh, elsewhere in the podcast.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, when, when they, when he, and I think it was Jen's, but when they were talking together, I thought that was amazing because, you know, she was one of these people who was really directly, her family was really directly hurt by that. And the two of them having this kind of really lovely conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation. And that was one of the most amazing things. And you're you're right. Cause encouraging stuff was thin on the ground in this podcast because there's just so much damage, but it was a, a really beautiful moment of encouragement
1: and not easy like you could tell it wasn't everything is great and everything is wonderful you could hear in her voice that she was like i am still really hurt and this is still not okay and it means a lot to me that you're coming to me but it's still yes. a lot like it just you could you could tell it wasn't it wasn't trying to oversimplify and, and he told that there had been one person that he'd reached out to and they were like that's nice we're not ready to forgive you yet and that you know years later or whatever he heard from them and they were like okay now we're ready um, so it wasn't just made into it. Just say you're sorry and everything is fine. It, I appreciated them deal, treating it with with weight um, and and saying it's not it's not always that simple, but but that there is a possibility of reconciliation and and that picture of humility and repentance. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening to Complementarianish. Complementarianish is presented by the Christian Feminist Podcast, a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison. If you'd like to communicate with us with ideas for episodes or if you have comments on what you've heard, please get in touch with us at Podcast at gmail.com and place complementarianish in the subject line. Be on the lookout for another complementarianish episode coming soon.